Welcome to Southside Conversations, a monthly podcast brought to you by the Center for Dairy Excellence. We've heard time and time again that dairy farmers learn the most from other dairy farmers. So in this podcast, we are going to share real-time farmer insights, tricks of the trade, and inspiring stories from dairies across Pennsylvania. I'm Jane Seabright, Director at the Center. Here's this month's episode. Thanks for joining us. I hope you all survived the last few weeks of brutally cold weather. January can be rough on everyone, you, your employees, and your herd. Here to talk today a little bit about what they're doing to take good care of their cows year-round is Justin Risser from Meadow Vista Farms. Justin and his family also went through a recent transition, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Welcome, Justin, and thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to be here. So let's get started by having you share a little bit about your dairy farm operation, who's involved, your size and scale, and where you're located. Okay, so we we milk about 875 cows. Uh, We're in the very northwest uh, corner of Lancaster County. So I always tell people that um, we can see the uh, Three Mile Island uh, steam towers from our farm. Um, We're about three miles from Three Mile Island. Um, and so you don't have to drive far to get to Dolphin County. Um, we we uh, milk our cows in the double 16 herringbone parlor. Uh, we farm about 725 acres of uh, crop uh, of uh, corn and, and rye ground. Uh, we do double cropping. Uh, the owners um, is my uncle Don and my dad Gerald, and then myself. Um, so a three-way partnership between between all of us. Um, some of our um, key employees, we got a couple of herd managers, Tanya Baldwin and Phil Hamner, that uh, help out with the cows, and then a crop manager, uh, Jason Brandt, is new to the operation. He's been with us for, uh, this is his second year, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Jason uh, later on. So can you talk a little bit about your management structure and what some of your core goals for the business are? Um, so yeah, we, uh, when it comes to management structure, um, we, we are hands-on managers and I know when you have larger farms, um, some managers, uh, like to be a little bit more hands-off and let their, their staff take care of things. We've always been, uh, hands-on, which means, uh, you know, we're out there, um, with the cows. Um, personally, I'm out there with the cows every morning, um, and we're also out there in the shop working on equipment too. Um, and, and that's we've always done that, and so we're working side by side with our employees every day. Um, so the way we um, kind of manage our farm is that we treat each field and each animal individually, and we've uh, been doing that for years. And so we're, we're a larger herd, but we have what you would say are characteristics of a smaller herd, in which that we have a little bit more individual attention. Um, our core goals are sustainability uh, when it comes to a lot of the natural resources that we are endowed with, uh, whether it be uh, water or, or uh, the fields and the topsoil, um, financial progress, um, production growth, uh, giving back uh, in the community, whether it be through uh, the dairy industry or through our churches. Um, and, and we manage, um, we try to manage each area of the farm to the best of our abilities and and if we're not the best person to manage that area and we have an employee that can do a better job, uh, 
we uh, we always try to pick the best person and the person that's most passionate about each area on the farm and have them uh, take take control and, and really take the reins on it. So I thought the one thing I thought was really interesting is how you said you you manage each field and each cow as an individual, and I've often heard that about cows, but I'd never heard that about fields before, and that that's a really interesting approach, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. But first of all, you and your family recently completed a farm transition. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how it evolved over the past couple of years? Yeah, so um, coming out of the, the, the pandemic of 2020, um, there was um, there was some discussion about um, you know now's a good time to sit down with the family and and transition more of the equity uh, from the senior generation to the junior generation. We had done some back in uh, 2012, um, so we were we were approaching almost 10 years, and we thought we'd do some more. Um, so in 2021, we met as a family in March, um, and it was at that time that um, my cousin, who's uh, my generation, um, uh, however, he's 10 years older than me, that um, and, and and it's almost a different stage of life than me. I had I had younger I have younger kids, and his kids were um, approaching college age. Um, we found out that he wanted to divest his interest and and leave Metavista Dairy. Um, so the the approach quickly um, changed. Um, we were talking about um, changing uh, equity from two seniors to two juniors, and it quickly became uh, uh, how do we uh, funnel everything down to one partner, um, and, and the buyout went from two senior partners to two senior partners and one junior partner. So um, at that time, it was. Um, it, uh, I'll, I'll be kind of honest. It was kind of a, a kind of a dark time for me and Melissa. We weren't quite sure um, what this would look like, and the financial burden, and and just the management responsibilities, and 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 the load of management that would follow me. Um, so it was um, the opinion of the transition team that we would just take a break for a while, and and uh, so we did. We took about a five month break, and we reconvened in uh, July um, and over that time you know Melissa and I had lots of discussions and, and each partner with their own wife and amongst each other we talked and um, and <clears throat> and it came up we came up with a plan um, ultimately we each sat down with the transition team as a couple um, Melissa and I you know uh, sat down individually with the team and then my, my, my dad and mom and my uncle and my aunt and and we just kind of you know, kind of laid out all our feelings, and and we came up with a plan, and and ultimately, you know, it, it came down to I didn't feel like um, I was being um, called anywhere else. I felt like you know God still wanted me here, um, you know, and you know, will God want me here when I'm 90? I don't know. I mean, but I just felt like at that time it it was right for us to continue this operation, and so we we sat down with the team and and we kind of um, said, well. The, the the finances look daunting, but we we want to continue and and uh, I distinctly remember my accountant, you know, looking at me and saying, "Hey, you tell us what you want to do, and we'll we'll figure out how to make it work." So I felt good about that, and uh, that's kind of and then from there on, it was just how do we exit Eric? 
Um, how do we bring in a crop manager? And because Eric managed the crops for years, and and how do we start the ball when it comes to uh, the payouts and stuff like that? So, like you said, that was a lot for you to work through mentally, and I know it was a lot probably for your uncle and your dad to work through. How did you use consultants or bring in outside perspectives into the transition planning to help you work through some of that thought process? Yeah, so I the the transition wouldn't have gone well had we not had really good consultants and and I mean this might seem like a no brainer, but I felt like the best thing we could have done is used a lot of the same consultants that were on our profit team that we that we see three times every year. We we do get together um three times a year for a profit team meeting with um our veterinarian, uh banker, accountant, uh a team leader, um and a nutritionist and family and so all all of these um this just so happened all these uh guys, uh, there's no females on the team. They um they know us, they know us really well. Um they have the same uh background in faith as us and so they brought they brought uh that to the table. Uh, I remember a couple of the transition uh meetings we actually opened up with uh scripture, which was really good to kind of keep us grounded in and you know what what's this all about. Um so having that prior relationship um it helped us to get a jump start on, on things because we we knew each other, we knew what we uh, ultimately wanted to accomplish, and you know they knew not just me or not just my dad. They knew the whole family. Like they knew all of our wives. They might not know them, you know, as 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 close as probably what they should, but they knew them well enough that when we went through the transition discussion that. Um, they had a good idea of what they wanted to achieve as well th through the farm transition. So what do you think some of the key aspects to the transition helped to make it successful? Uh, I would say um, the first thing we did was we, before we even met the first time, was we did uh, a four-page questionnaire. I think it was about nine or ten questions just you know what you know what where do we see the farm going and um you know what um what has been a success so far and we brought all those questions into our first meeting now like i said the first meeting um we found out that eric wanted that divest and so that kind of did a 180 on the whole transition at the, that was that that blindsided i had some suspicion about that but that did blindside the two senior partners my uncle had a little suspicion, but he wasn't quite sure that he was ready to do that. His son wasn't ready to divest, but my my dad had absolutely no idea. So it was a lot to uh, take in that first meeting, but we did this questionnaire, and we came back to it later um, after the emotions kind of settled down. Um, and uh, so I would say that was one good key aspect of the transition was we sat down individually I did one, my wife did one, they were separate, um, and we all kind of answered the questions. And then the team leader, um, he went through them, um, and he uh, was able to kind of see trends. And then when we met individually with him, he would um, pull that information out and go back to it when he uh, when he talked to us individually as, as couples. And, and um, so I think it's good um, to kind of do that personal assessment. Um, and take the time and just uh, think and reflect and 
and kind of dream, you know, what what could this transition look like? We milk cows, but, you know, is that what we always want to do or do we want to do we want to go a different path and, and like, maybe do more value-added or uh, crop more ground or, you know, do do something a little different? You know, you never know until you start uh, dreaming and, and thinking about that kind of stuff. So um, now that you now that the ownership has started to transition, what do you what are you doing to continue to position the dairy for success? Uh, going back to my my interview with the transition team in July of 2021, and and basically coming to that meeting and saying I'm gonna I'm gonna stay in, and you know God's not calling me anywhere, and then I kind of tell them at that time that. Um, I want to stay in, but how is this going to work? Um, that's a lot of that's a lot of cash out of the business. I'm not I'm not able to to bring any more cash in. It's just it's a a transition is a is a cash drain. I I hate to say it that way, but I mean it, you don't get any return on on buying out partners. So that was my concern all along. Um, so the the main thing that we looked at for the success of the operation is we do have good cash flow and and it's to protect that cash flow and so when we wanted to look to buy out three partners um, we tailored the buyout to the loans as they were being paid off Um, so we had a number of loans and they were all um, kind of staggered as far as when they were um, set to expire Um, so that involves setting up deferments on payments um, and paying interest in lieu of principal to certain partners until certain loans um, got paid off. And we expanded our business in 2006, so we had a 20-year note on the expansion, um, which was the largest note. And so that is due to expire coming here. We paid interest only for a little bit. So in 2027, that's due to expire. So when that expires, that opens up a lot of potential for, for payments. And so that's that's the number one thing is, we, we didn't want to stress the dairy for the next four or five years and then, you know, hand it over to the next generation and say, you know, here you are in a stress situation, a cash flow stress situation. Now, you know, they'll try to turn things around. We wanted to send it into that transition on a good on a good footing. I mean, the one thing that I'm hearing, it sounds like all of you, it took a lot of empathy from all of the partners to recognize the number one goal was to see the farm continue and the ones, even your cousin who is a younger generation that left, they all, you know, you all have a common goal and you're all working towards that goal to make the transition as smooth as possible. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it takes buy-in from, at that time it was four partners and four, four wives. It takes, it takes buy-in from all, all of us to say, you know, we need to all have the same common goal, and if we all want to see the dairy and the farm thrive, then we need to be willing to um, bend in certain directions when it comes to relative value of your equity and as far as how that payment's going to um, arrive and in what time what time, and what fashion. Um, so there were some immediate needs for Eric, um, you know, for him to get off the farm that we addressed um and we understood that and then um so but we were more concerned about the long term and the and the actual term of those uh payments we wanted 
we ultimately wanted to, uh, once we started those payments, we wanted to make sure that they were done in 15 years so that by the time I was looking to get out, they would be completely, uh, or looking to transition, I would say, um, looking, they, those would be paid off. So when I'm in my late 50s, early 60s, that I would have something to turn over to someone else and that there wouldn't be any more debt that I would still owe to the senior partners or to Eric at that time. So what are the future business goals that you have for the dairy? With it just being myself at this point in time, um, we we don't have any expansion plans at the uh, immediate uh, moment. We we do have, you know, like I said, we we crop 725 acres. We don't have um, a whole lot of land around us that is available. Um, uh, we do, you know, try to increase our our rental footprint in the area, but um, we haven't had a lot of success. Um, a lot of guys like to farm their own ground. Um, there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of um, renting that goes on in our area, and we have the the river uh, one mile to our west, which limits 25% um, of the direction that we can go because um, there's no bridge right there at that river junction. Um, so it's increased production per cow uh, by maximizing comfort. Um, so I feel like the best way to pay off these um, these loans in the form of payout of partners is to um, get the most out of most milk out of every stall. Um, so I would say in the next five years, five to seven years, you know, new dry cow born. I will talk a little bit about transition cows, and and we're doing a pretty good job. But I um, I would like to have a better place for our dry cows. Um, we would like to have um, more uh, corn uh, corn silage uh, storage, like a 15 month. We're on a 12 month cycle with corn silage. So as soon as we finish up feeding, we're basically starting green corn silage and. From a production standpoint, if we had three months overlap, I mean, we feel like we could do pretty good um, at increasing production in more uh, rapid jumps. Um, and so, when it comes to when it comes to production, you know, um, I would say our goal. Um, and we just this past December was the first time we ever did it was uh, to ship seven pounds per per cow per day of combined fat and protein. So high milk, high components, and uh, we did that in December, um, just just 7.01 pounds of fat and protein. And then we also have a goal of being under 100 for somatic cell, which most time, most of the most of the time of the year, we are under 100. Um, uh, our average for the 12-month average is somewhere around like 92, 93. With um, right now we're in the 80s. Sometimes we go to about 110 in the middle of summer, but um, we average below 100. So to keep that and uh, keep good herd health. It sounded like you have some really clear production and production goals. As far as milk quality, what are your goals related to milk quality in the herd, and how are you working to achieve both your production and your milk quality goals? Uh, when it comes to milk quality, you know, we, we try to have – a clinical treatment number, I would say, of less than uh, it's, it's usually about less than one and a half percent for the month. So I mean, that's about 20 cows. Our herd size, 20 cows or less, that we actually um, are treating for mastitis. We we do have really good health, and we have noticed over the years that not every cow needs um, intramammary treatment. Um, so we do give cows a chance to self-cure, 
Um, and so reducing antibiotic use um, in, in mastitis is another goal. Um, we, um, you know, we, we watch those cows and, and usually um, with some of the minor cases, now obviously if there's uh, a strong um, response or, or sickness because of mastitis, we, we need antibiotics. But usually on some of the minor cases, you know, give them two or three days and they're starting to clear up on their own without antibiotics. Um, we, we use sand in the stalls, um, the milkers, um, you know, we use one, one uh, towel per cow in the parlor. Um, I'm pretty religious with changing out my towels um, about every three months. I like to keep the towels fairly youthful. I, you can tell when the towels are getting old and they'll wash quite as well. Um, so we change them out. Um, in, in the in the parlor, the guys are stripping and dipping, um, so they're looking at each quarter um, before they're putting the unit on and catching mastitis cows. You know, about as quick as I would like them to. When it comes to uh, treat treatments, you know, if we do find one that needs antibiotics, we try to, I would say, treat longer rather than shorter, and go for the cure rather than. Um, try to jump the gun and get her back in the tank sooner. So um, the last thing we want to do is, is treat and under-treat and then have her come clinical two or three weeks down the road and then be back in that group and us lose all that time and energy the first time. So um, that, I would say that's the, probably the, the, the number one thing. We also do blanket dry treat the, uh, the dry cows and use a tea sealant um, to prevent infections over the dry period. So... Can you talk a little bit about what your you talked about your employees and how they're really paying close attention to the cows and to achieve those goals? Can you talk a little bit about what your employee team looks like for the dairy and what the top two or three things you do to keep them engaged in focusing and working towards those goals? So I there are a couple things that we do. When I when I hire, I tend to look for people that are internally driven and not necessarily those that, you know, just want a paycheck. Um, but we do offer a milk quality bonus that per milking personnel that could cap out at about two hundred dollars a month based upon number of quality check marks that they get. Uh the number of clinicals, somatic cell. Uh, the plate count, the PI count, um, just kind of all-encompassing. Are they washing the units, cleaning the cows, um, checking the cows, and sorting the cows out that are sick? When it comes to, like, my mid-managers, you know, a lot of them, I don't feel like I have to wave a bonus in front of them to get them to do a good job. They they, they care. Um, they, they have always worked on farms. They know what a successful uh, farm looks like. Every... The last number of years, we've been really generous with our Christmas bonuses. That's one way that I feel like we can um, give back to these employees. They're doing um, their best every day to get the bonuses that we get, you know, when it comes to milk quality. I mean, the milkers get all the, the praise when it comes to the milk quality, but really the guy that's putting the sand in the stalls and the feeder for putting a consistent ration out there and, and the herd managers for treating the cows um, with the right antibiotic. I mean, it's it's a team effort. When it comes to hiring, I would say that's one area that I feel like grown in, really looking for the people that that care, um, that are trainable, um, that have good character, and not just the ones that come, you know, with all the skills that you need because um, 
that there's more to having um, a good employee, and a lot of it has to do with their character and their personality and how they're going to fit on your operation. Yeah, I really, I really like that. You look for employees that are driven internally, uh, and there, you can't, you can't buy that. That's something. That's a, it's a really good attribute to look for. So overall, what do you think the most key, the most critical factors are to getting your herd to perform at the optimal level? So yeah, I was as I was thinking about that question, uh, some of the things that kind of popped to my mind, and I had to. I wrote them down, and I was like, "Wow, is that is that something I want to say?" And I and I came back to the fact that, yes, these are probably some of the things that I think are some of the most important. And um, obviously, you know, you think of genetics, um, and genetics is one thing that you know we we are using a lot of younger um, uh, some of the top bulls. But I, I would say when it comes to herd performance, good care of young calves. I, I, I go back to. I have a good crop of two-year-olds that are coming in. I mean, the last 30, you know, they're all milking really good, you know, whatever. You go back and you look in PCR, those calves, they they weren't sick as young calves. You know, they had a really good start. Um, they had really good care. Um, and then you, you get a group of calves that, you know, might have struggled. And then you look at what their, you know, their first test weights are and, and it'll show. And so I, I neglected a you know, when I was talking about my employees, talking about my um, my calf eater, she's part-time. She's been with us for 10 years, and she's one of the lives of one of my milkers, and she does a really good job of consistently feeding the calves and weaning the calves. And then she, she if one is off for anything, you know, she picks up on it, whether it be a pink eye or, you know, enlarged navel. I mean, she, she was never in dairy until she started working for us, and she's learned a lot. So good care of young calves is something that I, I think tends to get overlooked on dairies. Uh, you know, we tend to throw our 14-year-old kids there and say, hey, go feed the calves, and then they, they kind of get overlooked because the 14-year-old doesn't know, you know, what, what calf looks sick and what doesn't. It's not drinking. It's not reported, you know, and you got to have good, consistent care at those young calves. And then forage quality, um, the cows aren't going to milk unless you um, pay attention to your forage quality and, and get it in at the right time for moisture. Um, don't let it get rained on if it's, you know, small grain. And, um, and you know, we don't do alfalfa anymore. But when it comes to rye, it's um, if it's ready, um, knock it down, get it in. Um, don't, don't wait. Um, and then cow comfort. Um, so the, the, the sand in the stalls, the ventilation, the sprinklers, all the stuff that we do in the summertime, um, you know, we knock back overcrowding in the summertime to give cows more space. Those are some of the things that help us to uh, get the cows to perform. So since we're coming off what was a really, really cold snap, just curious, uh, you mentioned, so the, the four things I heard you mention were um, good genetics, quality calf care, forage quality, and cow comfort, and the last three, being on my own farm, the last three, you know, calves, you really, you know, the up and down weather has been hard on calves. I think the last month, uh, forage quality, you get some, you know, freezing and thawing and not quite, a, you probably don't have as much issues with 
quality with the cold weather, but there is some freezing and thawing going on with Cal Comfort. You know, you said you're sand, you're bedding with sand. You know, how are you dealing with? Have you had any issues with frozen bedding or anything like that? I guess anything you did in the last month that kind of you shifted a little bit because of the cold weather in any of those areas. So yeah, we. I mean, having recycled sand and then having you know, wind chills near zero, sometimes your, your recycled sand is a frozen pile. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to adjust. You have, you have to adjust. And, and you know, seeing some of that weather coming, we, we went out and bought some new sand, put it on the roof. And so if we had to, um, we went in with new sand, which the cows really, really like. Really, cows really like new sand. I mean, recycled sand this time of year um, is going to be wet no matter how you manage it. Um, and you, you you bet it, um, you put it in the stalls, and then the cows lay on it, and their body heat actually dries it out. And um, But it is a little bit of a damp surface for them to lay on initially um, until the body heat dries it out. Um, but it is sand, so the uh, bacterial load um, should be less than um, anything that's organic. I mean, that's one thing that I wish um, we had some sort of way to dry our sand or you know, there's times I wish we had a roof over our sand, but then I don't want a roof over our sand in July. I want the sun to, the UV rays mm-hmm. to, to penetrate it and dry it out. So um, it, it's, it kind of, kind of comes with the time of year. Um, when it comes to young calves and the, and the, and the temperatures, you know, uh, the end of this week looks like 60. And I can tell you right now, it's probably going to be one of those things where we're going to be walking the calves and looking at them pretty hard because mm-hmm. it's going to be a big stress for them. But when last week when it was extremely dry and cold, um, we know that we can work on focusing on other things, as like keeping them dry and bedded, and not have to look for respiratories quite as much because they don't pop up quite as quickly in very cold weather. I, I really like the, the challenge that farming does um, give us every day. Um, it, it's not the same old, same old as as you become a seasoned farmer or herdsman or whatever like you know you know what you're going to deal with every day um you know friday i'm i'm going to probably be treating a couple for respiratory but that's to be expected uh, that's this comes with the uh the struggle of farming is dealing with the environment that you can't control so let's talk a little bit about the transition stage um what are you doing in the transition stage that's as far as vaccinations or milk quality treatments, you did talk about your blanket treating all of the dry cows. Um, anything else you're doing that's unique? When it comes to dry cows, um, yeah, the, the, the blanket dry cow treatment um, and teat sealant, we also vaccinate them for, there's a dry uh, pellet that we give that our vet practice makes. Um, that's kind of like what they call a, a regional. Um, it's a they, they gr- gather a lot of bugs from from local dairies in the area and say this is probably the most prevalent form of E. coli or Klebsiella, and then they isolate them and and they make a um, a uh, standalone uh, vaccine for the area. Um, our vet has been vet practice has been doing that for years, and so there's a lots of different things in there, E. coli mastitis, Klebsiella, bacterial pneumonia is another one um, that we've started treating for in the dry period. Um, the once PMH, um, we've, we've once, once we started doing that, we started to see a few less bacterial pneumonias 
um, which are different than the virals. So the virals, we uh, we were seeing them early lactation, so we decided we could fit a bacterial pneumonia vaccine in over the dry period to protect those hardworking uh, early lactation cows. Once we started treating for bacterial pneumonia, it seemed like the pneumonias in early lactation went away. So we figured we had a bacterial component, not a viral, and so we do treat with uh, the once PMH. So other than that, I mean, we can talk a little bit about housing and the ration, but when it comes to the treatments and vaccinations, that's what we're doing. So as far as housing and the ration, what, what does that look like for your dry cows? The dry cows are housed indoors on free stalls. Um, they're bedded with sawdust. So for some cows, it's a it's a rude awakening going from a deep bedded sand uh, bed to uh, being on a, a rubber mattress with, with sawdust. Um, it doesn't have quite the give. You know, I will say that there are some older cows that have to learn to, to get up a little bit differently on a rubber mat versus on a sand bedded free stall. We do do a foot bath each week. We make sure that they all go through it. Um, that's one thing that we we don't try to shy away from is is forgetting about the the feet on these dry cows. And so we do a foot bath each week with the uh, Ultra Two and One, the formaldehyde copper combination. The ration is uh, primarily a uh, straw and corn silage. Uh, it's a very low, uh, or, or I would call it a non-existent calcium diet, um, and so it's a very low energy. I had we switched to this approach um, back in 2017 when we switched nutritionists, and I, I just I had the hardest time understanding this kind of dry cow ration, and um, we've now been on it seven years, going on I think close to eight years now, and every year that goes by, it seems like the health gets better in our dry cows, and I, I didn't think the cows would milk on this kind of ration. You know, you don't. You're feeding lots of straw and and just corn silage, and it's a very it's a very cheap ration, um, and it's not one that can separate very. Uh, it can separate fairly easy if it's not mixed well, but it just uh, it prevents them from becoming too heavy um, with the straw, and and when they come in with the right body condition, which is what we're seeing, they're coming in with the right body condition, they just take off, and there's. Um, you know, like the, the two or three day fevers that a lot of herds, herd managers will, will note that fresh cows will run, even if they clean, they'll run a two or three day fever. If the cows are coming in with good body condition, those two or three day fevers don't really exist. And we tempt cows and if they clean, there's probably nothing wrong with them. We hardly even, you know, pay attention to them. So it leads me to think that those two or three day fevers were some sort of subclinical nitritis that they were running if they're just a little heavy and 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 just sluggish um but now they're they're coming in fine and and you know metabolic illness you know in our transition cows we we hardly treat almost anything anymore so that's really interesting you had talked about you started to talk about metabolic so what are you doing? Are you doing anything unique in the pre-fresh or post-fresh group to to counter any transition-related issues? What are your goals like related to incidences of ketosis, DAs, and other illnesses, and how you're working to prevent those? Prior to 2017, we always fed a DCAD diet, so um, we, you know, you balance with the 
Um, but the, you do the math and, and you, you have a negative and you, you feed the antibiotic salts and everything like that. And that's supposed to help prevent the uh, milk fevers by being uh, a negative DCAD diet. Um, so when I changed nutritionist and I went with the one I'm with now, I asked him if he feeds DCAD and he said, no, I don't feed DCAD, I feed low calcium. And I said, well, why don't you feed DCAD? Because we'd always been DCAD. And he said, uh, I just, I feel like DCAD is hard on heifers. And I was like, okay. And so we started feeding this low calcium diet instead of DCAD. And I would say, honestly, if we ever saw those two or three day fevers that I mentioned, they were a lot of times in the heifers. Um, the heifers just came in on this low calcium diet and they just they just take off. I mean, they I, I come to believe that. I think he's right. I think the DCAT is just a little bit harder on the, the two year old heifers than it is the cows and so when we feed this diet, you know, we used to we used to go through a lot of propylene glycol and drench and have like ketosis. You know, on this diet, there's virtually no ketosis. I would say no primary ketosis. Secondary ketosis because a cow might be, you know, flipping with a DA back and forth, um, or she might, you know, be if she's lame and she has secondary ketosis because she's not eating well. That stuff still happens. But when it comes to primary ketosis and having them on a low energy diet, um, it just shows that their their hormones and their energy is all correct. Um, their liver is healthy, they come in and they just, they eat, they make milk, and they take off. And we we used to cut multiple DAs a month. Um, and now, I think last check, I think we did 11 DAs all of last year. So we're less than a DA uh, per month. Um, and we're pretty, we're pretty happy with that. I would like to be less than 10 for the whole entire year. Uh, ketosis is very, very little, like I said. Um, and other metabolic diseases, I mean, I think those tend to come and go. Metritis is tied a lot of times to to dystocia um, and also having twins. Um, that's where we see the highest rate of metabolic there, with, uh, the metritis. Our goals are obviously, you know, you want to have almost zero of all that, but you want to eliminate the primary ketosis. That's the first thing. You shouldn't have cows that you are drenching just because they're overconditioned or they're sluggish, um, and that's what that diet, I think, really helped to uh, turn around. So once they're in the lactating group, how are they? How are, how are your groups divided, and how are they housed? What are you doing? You mentioned earlier sprinklers and your fans. What are you doing to ensure cow comfort in those lactating groups? So the lactating groups are divided up. We have one high group. Um, two first lactation groups, two mid-production groups. And when we label those groups high, first lactation and mid, it's the same ration, but it's based upon a different dry matter intake. So the first lactation cows, we balance for 49 pounds of dry matter intake. The high group, uh, 60 pounds. And then the mid groups, um, we balance at 55. When we freshening cows and we move cows out of the post-fresh group, we kind of look at each individual animal. Like I said earlier, we we look at each individual animal for their own characteristics. If they're, they got a potential for being high producing, they'll go into our high group, which is group one, and um, we know that they'll probably eat more, so they're balanced for 60 pounds. Um, the two-year-olds go in the two-year-old group, although we have one two-year-old group that we tend to call our uh, our better 
two-year-old group, a um, little bit more uh, potential in those two-year-olds, um, and so we'll separate them out from the other two-year-old group. And then the mid-groups, um, within, within the two mid-groups, we have one group that has older cows that have maybe higher somatic cell count, their milk last. The barns are tunnel ventilated with sprinklers over the feed rails. We installed uh, circulation fans over the free stalls a number of years ago just to get a little bit more ventilation um, in the head-to-head -head free stalls. Uh, we were noticing that there was dead spots where the cows laid head-to-head, -head, that there just wasn't enough uh, fresh air going between them, so we installed circulation fans. Um, with the tunnel ventilation, the outside rows, those uh, curtains are left about four to six inches up off the sidewall so that there's fresh air coming in for those outside row cows that they get fresh air. So that's kind of how we manage that. As far as you talked a little bit about um, how you really try to use good genetics, what are some of your reproduction goals? When do you want to get cows bred back? What do you want your average days in milk to be? And how are you working to achieve those goals? So we do set everyone up to breed back at 70 days in milk. If if they um, if they come through um, freshening fine and, and are a cow that we find desirable that can go through another calving, we set them up to be to breed at 70 days. Some cows with dystocia or if they had a poor transition, we basically just put them on hold and we say we'll check them at 60 days for if they're cycling and determine if at that point at 60 days of milk, you know, if they are um, a cow to breed or a cow to call based upon production, um, what her body condition looks like at that point in time. We do our own ultrasounding work so we can um, look at these cows um, as often as what we want to, um, you know, like when it comes to checking to see if they're cycling or, or not, we can we can look at them every week if we want to. We have our own ultrasound machine. We arbitrarily have a line at 200 days of milk for cows need to be bred back. Now, here again, this is where we look at each individual cow. I tend to be the one that makes these calls, but I have other managers that weigh in too. But if we have a cow with good confirmation, good production, and it's a favorable time of the year to to keep breeding and she's open at 200 days um, as a team will say we're going to keep trying on her um, but if there are 200 days of milk and 80 pounds um, she's probably gonna be on the call list after checking her open that day um, but if they're 90 95 100 pounds 200 days of milk and let's say they're a good young animal or, or have high components or you know they, they don't have high somatic cell um, we're not one to shy away, and we keep trying on cows because the best cows are the ones we want to get bred back. Um, now, if there's a cow that's open at 150 days and she's milking 85 pounds and she's got a high somatic cell count, we might just say, well, we're, we're done with her. And so I tend to shy away from having um, one line that we use for all, all cows as far as reproduction because uh, those good cows I want to keep around. And, and if that means that she's got to milk 450 days before we dry her off. Well, we'll we'll just make sure that um, she transitions well by uh, having her on that low energy uh, dry cow ration. And uh, it, and that's a, that's a that's a really good thing I forgot to mention is that we do keep cows uh, for 450 days of milk and we transition them in on that ration and 
we don't battle ketosis. It's it's amazing. It's just that low energy component of that ration. It gets them fit for the next calving. So, as far as days of milk, let me go back to that. Where my days of milk is, the days of milk of my herd, it it fluctuates. But I don't think that um, I have an optimum other than you know I'd like to average you know about 175 to 185 year round. There are times where we're up around 195. There are times that we're down to about 165, 160. Rarely do I get down below 160 with the amount of heifers that we give, and we just don't we don't have a surplus of heifers, so we don't have um, huge turnover in the herd. We run an acceptable call rate, so our base milk, you know, stays in that 165 to 185 most of the year. So backing up a little bit, you had said that you're you're setting up your cows to breed at 70 days, and you're putting anyone who you know you're not quite sure if they're they're ready or they're going to make it through on hold to reevaluate at 60. Um, are you using are you using any special off-sync programs to get them right ready, like double off-sync or pre-off-sync or anything like that to get them ready? We. We are still an off-sync 60 uh, herd, so that's just a traditional off-sync. Yeah, we, we've t- kind of toyed with the idea of doing a bunch of other protocols, but we like to keep things simple. And um, the one thing we have tried is uh, anybody on third service or greater doing the second PG shot. So PG day 7, PG day 8, um, just to kind of get a little bit more um, of a response to um, for that CL, for her to come in the heat. Mm-hmm. So we have tried that. And I don't know that we've seen a huge increase. It's such a small number when it comes to cows that you're giving it to. It's only third service and greater, but we're we're kind of playing with that a little bit. And then are you are you using activity monitors or anything like that, or you're, you're breeding primarily off the shots? So we watch, we visually watch for heats. We don't have activity monitors on the farm, um, so we're we're breeding off of uh, visual observation of the heats, and then we're breeding um, 60 days after that PG shot, or six, I'm sorry, 60 hours. We're 60 hours after that PG shot is when we're breeding. Um, so if we don't see any heats. So transitioning back to the broader dairy. How are you working with outside consultants in the dairy, and how are they helping you? You mentioned your profit team, so it sounds like really ongoing, not just for the transition, but you're using consultants. How are they helping you reach your production goals? Yeah, so our profit team, which a lot of those have sat in on the transition team, you know, we, I mentioned earlier we meet three times a year, and a lot of those consultants have a lot, a lot of, uh, industry knowledge, and, and they push us to be better by telling us what works elsewhere. Each time we get together, um, we give them a monthly monitor um, that, that measures herd metrics and analyze our goals. So this monthly monitor is something that we created on our own. Um, there's there's no template for it. Um, it's just basically a spreadsheet, and we have about 40 different lines on it. It, it. It's getting to the point now where the font is uh, an eight-point font or something like that. You almost need... <laughs> You almost need a magnifying glass to read it, but we just have a lot of information on there, and it ranges anywhere from, you know, dry matter intake to, um, you know, components to production to call rate to calves born dead. or um, And so we that's something that we always monitor. At the end of each month, 
all the data is entered in, and then we can see trends. And um, so when we go over that as a profit team, you know, they they tell us, hey, you know, what happened this month, what happened that month, this number isn't so good. And then we can go back and we can look and say, hey, is there a protocol we should change? And none of these um, metrics are financial um, because when we do have these profit team meetings, they are, um, we do have our mid-managers in there. Um, so they are all production-based and herd health-based. Um, but they do kind of baseline where we're at, and then that way we can kind of all see as a team if things are starting to deviate um, mm -hmm. in a good direction or maybe even a bad direction. That's really good. And so when you look at those deviations and comparing yourself, are you looking at historical? Are you using historical numbers as benchmarks? Are you benchmarking against dairies, other dairies similar to yours? Like what are you using to evaluate those deviations? Uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, some of the guys um, that are on my profit team, they'll have monthly monitors stuffed in a folder from like eight mm -hmm. years ago and they'll pull it out and be like, oh, Justin, you remember back in this year that your number was this or whatever, and they'll pull it out. So the, they'll always say, well, look, look how far you've come, but then they're, you know, we have um, a, a veterinarian on our board and then also a nutritionist that is also a veterinarian, and so they have, um, between the two of them, they see most of the herds um, or know of most of the herds in southeast PA, and so they, they know a lot of numbers and so they'll they'll say, well, I know this person's doing this. You know, is there any way we can change um, and get some better numbers by changing mm -hmm. protocols or doing things a little bit differently? And then lastly, I'm just going to wrap up with a couple questions about your transition. So back to that process, what do you think some of the key learnings you had were as you went along the process of transitioning to a larger ownership role in your operation? So probably I was, uh, when I came back to the farm in 2006, one of the areas that I kind of got funneled into, um, I got voluntold, not volunteered, <laughs> was employee management. Um, looking back on it, I, I really feel like um, me stepping into that role was, was kind of uh, grooming, grooming me for this position. Um, if I if I had never done employee management and and my let's say my partner Eric you know if Eric was the employee manager and then you know he left and then I, all of a sudden I had to look to take that on um, that would make my position even all the more daunting. So employee management was something I had always done and so when he said he was leaving I was looking at adding one more employee because he has one person that does all of his crop work and so it it made transitioning to a larger ownership role easier knowing that I've already got the employees, most of them under me already. It's just adding a couple more. Another thing that I've done throughout the last uh, 17, 18 years since being out of college is um, being on leadership boards and um, from PDMP to Lancaster DHIA, I currently serve on my township board, you know, seeing financials regularly. So they all, all the financials of all those organizations look different. But it's mm -hmm. seeing financials, analyzing them, and seeing strong financials, and then seeing ones that we can work on, and then bringing that information back to the farm to our own financials. Um, like I don't do the book work here at the farm, but I need to um, I need to oversee to some degree the financials, and so that 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 experience has been very 
very good for me. And then, and then also serving in the township has made me feel confident in managing construction projects on the farm. Um, so as we, you know, look for a dry cow barn or we're building a bunker right now and we just built another barn for machinery storage, it, it gives me the confidence um, serving as a township supervisor to see a lot of, I see a lot of projects put, put before us as a board on land development and so mm -hmm. how we can utilize our land and, and develop it in a way that makes sense for not only the farm but for the uh, community. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of the roles that you were in previously helped groom you for this, like the project management, the financials, understanding financials, and even employee management, um, just prepared you to take on this largest role. And uh, really, everything you do in life is about learning, so it sounds like you had a lot of that to prepare you. What do you, what do you think some of the things your family did early on that made a big difference in helping this transition work well? So back when I was a kid in school, um, I always had a strong interest and in, in a keen eye for cows. And, and you know, my dad was the one that took care of the cows on the farm, and I always kind of helped him. I gravitated towards helping him rather than helping Uncle Don because he um, was in the office or he was out on the tractor. And so I, I fell in love with the cows more so than the tractors. When I came back from college, um, you know, my dad, uh, Gerald, and my, my uncle Don gave gave me a place on the farm and um, allowed allowed me to kind of take stuff on, you know, almost right away. Um, and I, I'm thinking about myself and how that I could make that happen in in a number of years with any of my kids or whoever's going to come on and help transition this farm. And that that seems fairly daunting for me because I, I don't know if I can do that, but my dad did it for me, and so I'm pretty appreciative of that. He let me kind of take over the herd almost right away, do things that um, maybe were a little bit different, and they also let me buy in um, as a small share, share owner after I was married for a few years. They they did have a, a stipulation in place that I need to be I need to be married. I need to be married for a couple of years um, before I could take on ownership, and that was just basically to protect protect the business, um, and so I respected that. And so even though I was a small percentage owner, uh, when it came to making decisions, we always looked at each other um, with equal weight uh, in opinion. So we would, um, if, if there was four of us and, and, and we were trying to decide on something and, and uh, two of us wanted to do something and two of us didn't, um, it didn't matter what the percentage ownership of those two that didn't want to do it. Um, we didn't we didn't advance it um, if it didn't make sense for all four of us. And then, what do you what made you interested in being part of the farm in the first place? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I going I mean, when I graduated high school, I I decided I was going to go to college and get a degree in animal animal science and then come back to the farm. And I I think it's just I like the lifestyle. I like living out in the country. I, I couldn't really see myself doing anything else. And I've always felt encouraged working uh, on the farm, you know, making my parents proud, making making my community proud of of the farms in our area. Um, there's there's a lot of good that farming represents. I mean, if you if you look around, I mean, the more people trust farmers than almost any other profession. There's there's a lot of good honesty. Handshake deals are always done in farming. And so um, when I thought about getting married and starting a family, you know, there's no better place to to start 
a family that own a farm and teaching kids how to work and about life and death and uh, when it comes to animals and, and the struggles that we go through. But, you know, our faith is intertwined with it, and we always have enough, um, no matter if it's good times or bad times, that, you know, we've we've always had enough. And we've gone through some dark times here on the farm. We've had a couple fires, and we've had, you know, some partners leave, and we, we all pull together, and we all tend to uh, pull together more during those times, um, and we are stronger because of it, and God has always provided. So I think I think looking back on it, it's 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 more than just my skills and and my interests. It's 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 bigger than that. It's it's how I live. It's it's how I see myself. It's how the community sees us, and all that goes into why I came back. Yeah, I actually liked what you called, you said earlier when you said you considered Eric leaving and figuring out what your path forward was and you said it, you still felt like it was your calling. I thought that was a really good way to describe it. So my last question is, um, since so many farms struggle with transition or even just getting along with each other, if another farm came to you and asked how he or she could improve communications between family members, what advice would you give them and what steps would you encourage them to take to ensure a successful transition of their farm? I would say probably, I kind of mentioned that a little bit sooner, is is the encouragement I always felt from the senior generation um, and to um, allow uh, change to happen. Um, I I hear too many times of farms that are going through transition where, you know, the, the senior generation might say, well, this is the way that works and this is the way that we've had the best results and this is the way we're going to do it. And and that tends to curb any sort of interest in, in growing in that younger generation. Um, they want to do things a little bit differently, and, and there's a time to keep things the same, and there's a time to let things change. And I go back to my experience when I came on here in 2006. Um, you know, we we went from 280 cows to, to 750 cows, and things things had to change because of just being a, a much bigger farm. But how we did things, there were there were areas in the farm that um, I wanted to take over and I wanted to, to change and be in control of, and I got the encouragement of the senior generation. And some of those things are just learning how to ultrasound, you know, taking over the whole reproduction program, doing all the breeding and shots in-house, and, you know, also over the years taking over a lot of the parlor maintenance and, and maintaining the parlor. It's best if somebody um, oversees that that's here every day. Um, from a consistency of uh, uh, milk out and, and getting good somatic cell, um, if there's a good parlor manager. Um, I've always felt encouraged by that, and I never felt like I had to prove myself. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there were obviously bumps along the road, but um, I felt encouraged that they wanted me to do this stuff and and to, to take my lumps and then to, to learn how to, to manage it and not really come down on me when I failed. Um, and there were failures along the way, but you got to let the younger generation take something, and then you got to allow you got to allow them to to kind of figure it out too. And that and that's kind of hard. Uh, that that that's really hard. I, and you know, for someone like myself, that I probably say I'm a little bit more of a control freak. I I don't know how I'm going to do, do that, but I'm going to have to probably resort to that <laughs> in about 15 years when I you know, or maybe 10 years when when someone wants to come on and just say, hey, you know, the senior generation did it for me. I need to do it for them. So. Well, hopefully, hopefully, Don and Jared will give you some advice. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I, I hope so. And I, you know, you know, with good health, I hope that they're still here when we go through that next transition. Yeah, so. yeah, and they can, they can, they can help help calm you down and tell you just, just have patience. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me today, Justin. I really appreciate your willingness to share. I thought this was really good. Uh, I was glad to be a part of this podcast, and um, you know, thank you for including me. I tend to get a little bit lost in my own business. This was good for me to sit down and reflect on. So, Good, good. So uh, Justin will be a part of a panel discussion on transition at the 2024 Pennsylvania Dairy Summit. That's coming up on February 7th and 8th at the Wyndham in Lancaster. We do really have a great program this year, so if you want to learn more, register. Visit padairysummit.org. You'll find a program and a lot of details there. For those of you who are working through a transition on your own farm, I encourage you to leverage the resources that are available, and there are a lot of resources available. One of those is our transition team program at the center. We do offer grants to assist with transition, and we have two consultants who are available at no cost to work on the hard and soft issues of a farm transition. To learn more, call 717-346-0849 or visit our website at centerfordairyexcellence.org. As always, this podcast is brought to you by the Center for Dairy Excellence to share farmer insights, tricks of the trade, and inspire stories from across the state. For more episodes, subscribe to the series on Apple, Spotify, or Amazon Music. Stay warm, everyone, and thanks for joining.